it's definitely harder to do it today, I think, than, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, everything just continues to get more competitive. If you if you want to sit around and wait for the perfect opportunity, like you'll never find it. I sit on um, the investment committee for a small charitable foundation here in Austin. It's roughly 50, 55 million dollars. I've never invested in private markets. And there's been an ongoing conversation about how should we think about this? Should we do it now? Is now the right time? And that conversation probably predates me joining the investment committee two years ago. So, you know, one of the sayings, I've got a friend in private markets, he says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today I'm joined by Chris Schelling. Chris is Chief Investment Strategist at Venturi Private Wealth, an independent wealth management firm based out of Austin, Texas, which manages over $2 billion in assets. Chris has extensive experience as an institutional allocator and more recently as an allocator in the private wealth space. He is a frequent contributor to Institutional Investor magazine, and he is also the author of the book Better Than Alpha. Um, Chris, you're very welcome to the show today. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. It's an interesting time for you to be joining us here. Obviously, uh, a lot going on in markets and a, a lot of uh, a lot to talk about from an asset allocation perspective. Um, obviously, you're Chief Investment Strategist at Venturi Private Wealth. Just to set the scene a little bit, can you just tell us a little bit about your background in getting to that position and uh, a little bit about your role as it currently stands? Sure. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Venturi and where we're at today. So we're $2.2 billion wealth management firm headquartered in Austin, Texas, and we work with uh, high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. Uh, the firm has been in existence for six or seven years, uh, kind of a background Merrill Lynch private bank. Uh, the partner spun out 
2015 with about half a billion dollars. I joined about a year ago to help build out the alternatives platform, which is an increasingly important kind of competency for, you know, the high net worth and ultra high net worth space. And as you mentioned, was recently promoted the chief investment strategist, which basically means I can now uh, extend some of my investment framework to the entire portfolio and help clients understand how alts solve their needs in a broader portfolio context. But prior to joining um, Venturi, I had about 20 years in the investment industry, almost all of that in alternatives. The first 10 years or so was in Chicago in a variety of asset management and broker-dealer roles. And then the last 10 prior to joining Venturi, I was an allocator at two different large state plans, uh, first in Kentucky and then most recently here in Texas. And, and at the state institutions, um, had a you know number of different seats, but all in alternatives and allocated um, just under $5 billion across private credit, private real assets, private equity, uh, and hedge funds. So uh, excited about the opportunity to take that kind of broad alts background and bring really an institutional kind of scale offering and level of service to our to our clients. Interesting. And does that obviously it presents opportunities? Does it present challenges as well in making that transition from the institutional world to the private yeah, wealth there's space? A few, I mean there's you know strengths and weaknesses of, of anything. I think there's a few big key strengths that you get as an institutional allocator that make the transition. Um access to some of the best investors on on planet earth because um, you're cutting meaningful checks at scale that makes you relevant and so you're able to really build a network quickly you know deploy capital quickly in the institutional space uh, and that creates that network that creates that pipeline i was just on a call yesterday with um, a top decile private equity fund it's coming back with their fourth fund their minimum is 50 million dollars because they can do that. They have 15 investors and that's it. And so, you know, not that we can necessarily take take advantage of that because we're not making $50 million checks, but there's an advantage to having scale. You can negotiate better terms. Um, and so leveraging that framework for clients, I think is very important. It also makes you somewhat inured to check size, right? I, I would say our industry is one where- yeah. Lots of people are attracted um, to the opportunity to just make money for themselves, uh, and having you know invested yeah. billions and billions of dollars for public servants across the country, it, it makes you you know less wowed uh, when you sit across the table from somebody who's worth a hundred million or a billion dollars because you've done this before. You're very used to managing large pools of capital, um, and so I think yeah I think the framework that we're putting in place for sourcing and diligence and selecting managers is very you know relevant for our clients and it'll allow them to take advantage of that. Now of course we're not able to cut the same size checks. We're not able to negotiate with kind of brute force, but you know having built a network of of GPs and having built those relationships and sat on limited partner advisory committees, making yourself a value added partner to them and showing yourself to be um, yeah. transparent, ethical, and smart is also valuable. Very good. So I guess a part, uh, it sounds like a lot of the value add that you are going to bring is bringing that, I suppose, you know, quote unquote, institutional grade or institutional level approach to the private wealth space in, 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 your, in your current role. I mean, there's probably a couple of different dimensions to it, but from, say, from an asset allocation perspective, when you look at how assets are managed in the private wealth space versus the institutional space, 
what are the obvious differences and where are the potential to to add value in that regard? There's probably more similarities than differences. Certainly, individuals don't have perpetual timeframes, but by and large, they still have very, very long-term time horizons. And I think having you know, sat at institutions that are ostensibly perpetual, whether they will be or not, we'll see. But you're investing over 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and you really get in the mindset of of thinking about that as the time horizon, not, you know, not this year, not even quarters. I think a lot of investors in capital markets are very myopically focused on the short term. So encourage our clients to think, you know, and in many cases, it is multi-generational wealth. Um, so putting a framework into kind of simplifying um, capital appreciation needs, income needs, capital preservation needs. That's kind of all you have as an investor. Those are the three big um, needs to any investment portfolio. And that's no different than, you know, endowments, foundations and, and, and pensions, frankly. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, we've become familiar with in the institutional world and particularly say endowments you talk about endowments and you you know you had this idea of the 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 yale model that became you know um something that was uh, replicated across many institutions and you know part of the challenge for maybe an individual investor is is not having the same access uh, to some of the type of opportunities that a big endowment would have um you know outside of access do you think um you know, I suppose, has the adoption of, of alternative investments more generally been as strong on the private wealth side as the institutional I side? I think that the runway there is is greater going forward as far as more adoption coming for individual investors. But have you seen, you know, Yale endowment model kind of led this change in the industry and really it was, you know, 30, almost 40 years ago in many cases for the early adopters. But today, pensions have... 25, 35, 40% in alternatives, at least in the US. Uh, you know, university endowments and foundations are in many cases 45, maybe even 50, 55% alternatives. So that move has already occurred. In the individual space, it's not the case. You know, mass affluent doesn't have access to the same type of institutional products. Like you, you mentioned, but there are liquid alternatives and things. There, there may be four or 5% in alternatives. So almost exclusively traditional public markets. High net worth, you know, 10, 15%, ultra high net worth have more. And and when you get to the institutional caliber family offices that are billion dollar family offices, they're run very much like those university endowments that frankly, they sit on the board as benefactors of in many cases. And so what you can see is, and I believe this is the case that that high net worth market segment in the middle is going to be migrating to portfolio construction that looks more like that alt heavy Yale model over the next 10, 20 you know, years. What does that mean for assets? Well, when institutions came into the space, it's $10 trillion worth of wealth they allocated into alternatives. The individual space is the same amount of assets as institutions, 27 trillion or 28 trillion, depending upon kind of what you look at, but it's growing twice as fast. So I think I think the opportunity there for the next decade or two decades is is your tens of trillions of dollars. And kind of what I want to do is is be involved in making that access uh, to those clients, that institutional grade that you sort of mentioned. Uh, in general, I think, Alan, I think access is kind of overrated in our industry. You know, a lot of people want to sell 
product and argue that that's the whole value added. I have access to this. I have access to that. Certainly, it is hard to get into some of the best funds out there. But more than access, I think it is finding finding good managers, right? And then building a portfolio of good managers. And you don't need access to do that. What you need is dedicated resources to just go out and source in a disciplined process. So it's as much a challenge of resourcing at the private wealth um, level, you know, in terms of putting good processes in place um, as much as I think access. That's, I think it's more process than access. I would argue it's more process than access, yeah. for sure. Interesting. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, this migration, as you call it, into alts um, that you think is is in, in the works. Um, and, and I guess... You know, there are structural reasons for that. And then there are macro and valuation reasons why we might expect that as well. Everybody's talking about the end of the 60-40 portfolio, uh, whether you use a 60-40 or not. But I mean, people are saying generally bonds and equities are both fairly richly valued. And uh, people are increasingly, I guess, on the fixed income side in particular, looking for alternatives. Um, as you think about that and you and you think about your institutional experience um, and your ALTS experience, you know, how do you bring that into formulating a new standard uh, that, that's going to kind of um, disrupt the 60-40 and, and what does that well, look I like? Mean, I, th I think you do have to kind of step back from an asset allocation framework and think about what you're likely to get from various asset classes going forward. So it does kind of have to stop, start top down certainly um predictions are very hard to do in our industry but i think you can find things that are uh good indicators of probabilities of returns in in equities it's definitely harder because you're getting you're getting a lot more of the total return from changes in, in valuations and multiples over time certainly earnings growth in public markets uh over long periods does you know impact um impact equity equity returns and in private markets i mean it's no different you're, you're buying on one multiple hoping to sell at another multiple and really the only thing you control in between is trying to grow the earnings um, but if you look you know you mentioned you look at more people leaning into private credit right now if you look at private credit versus public credit it's a lot easier to see the difference um I think there's a lot of criticism for institutions for quote unquote reaching for yield and you know stepping into riskier asset classes like private credit. Well, if you look at senior secured sponsored back, you know, private credit direct lending strategies, this is the top of the capital structure. So they're actually higher in in terms of you know bankruptcy priority than most high yield bonds are, and they're yielding, you know, 300, 400 basis points in excess of what high yield bonds are. So are they riskier? Okay, maybe you have a little bit lower credit quality, but then you're more senior in the capital stack. You certainly have a lot less liquidity. Um, so yeah, you're probably picking up a little bit more risk. But if you're, you know, doubling your yield for 1.2 times the risk, or, you know, even 1.5 or some sort of arbitrary measurement of that collective risk profile, you're still enhancing your risk return um, you know, asset utilization. So why wouldn't you go make that trade? I mean, I think I think people are looking at yeah. it and going, okay, this is relatively easy to predict those forward returns, even though it's not perfect, right? Maybe you do get some more defaults and and lower recoveries than you thought, but it's a pretty big margin of safety. So, you know, that's that's kind of what our framework looks at and what we're 
trying to educate our clients is capital appreciation. Here's what you can get in publics. Here's what you might be able to get in privates. Income. Here's what you can get in publics. Here's what you might be able to get in privates. But then it does step back from the top-down framework, and it really requires those bottom-up resources that you mentioned. I think I think the real key for the Yale model is is that bottom-up approach, right? So in my opinion, Yale model is two things. It's a process and it's an outcome. And across the industry, people have looked at the outcome in a lot of cases, but across, across the industry, people have looked at the outcome and said, let's go naively replicate that, right? 20% private equity, 10% hedge funds, 10% private credit, a little bit real estate, 60-40 or whatever with the remaining publics. And, and by and large, that's still done fairly well, but that's not what Yale did, right? Yale built the framework by going, mm. this is a really interesting source of returns. You know, th these guys and gals here at this private shop, they're doing something that's really compelling. Let's go invest in them. And then they found another one. They found another one. They just said, wow, these are areas of, you know, um, relatively attractive returns compared to the risk we're taking. They're not overcapitalized for whatever reason, barriers to entry, regulatory, but let's just go do them and put guardrails around how much we do rather than have a, a bullseye, like a target we're shooting for. And the result was a very yep. differentiated and compelling profile. I think you have to marry the two, right? So you start with the framework mm. that says, here's why you do it, but then you go look in more of an unconstrained bottom-up approach for um, what I call easier gains. You find the easier gains and, and then you allocate to them. And uh, you're right. I mean, it, I think how you describe it is, is accurate. The people have looked at the outcome and said, oh, that's, that's something that's worked very well, so let's replicate that. And I suppose the upshot has, of that has been a flood of money into private equity, you know, people harvesting the illiquidity premium. And then arguably we're seeing this in private credit, private debt, private everything, you know, as, as you say. And the way you presented there, it seems like a sensible thing to do, a good risk reward. But at the same time, there's another perspective in the back of my mind saying, okay, if all of this money is flooding in, is that a warning sign that, you know, assets flows typically follow returns as opposed to leading it? Is it you know, we've had a decade of very favorable conditions in terms of low rates, you know, good, decent growth, uh, favorable liquidity. You know, how do you balance that a kind of a, a macro concern about, the, the, you know, about a different regime in the next 10 years versus something that seems to have a structural uh, advantage? It's definitely harder to do it today, I think, than, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, everything just continues to get more competitive. If you, if you want to sit around and wait for the perfect opportunity, like you'll never find it. I sit on mm. um, the investment committee for a small charitable foundation here in Austin. It's roughly $50, $55 million. I've never invested in private markets. And there's been an ongoing conversation about how should we think about this? Should we do it now? Is now the right time? And that conversation mm. probably predates me joining the investment committee two years ago. So, you know, one of the sayings, I've got a friend in private markets, he says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. I think it's the <laughs> same thing in a lot of these asset classes that are still less efficient than, you know, large cap growth stocks in, in developed markets. Mm. I mean, just think about, it. you've got, you know, a million, two million, maybe three million, and that's just professional people engaged in active price discovery on a day-to-day -day basis in public 
equities. And in the U.S., you've got maybe 4,000 public equities where information on all of those companies, their business models, their pricing strategies, you know, it's available almost instantaneously to everybody, you know, so it's, it's great for the transparency of the market, but that means that it's extremely, extremely efficient. You just don't have anything remotely approaching that sort of transparency in private markets yet. Now, to your point, like there's been a flood of money in, and I think the industry has kind of evolved to, um, a, you know, a series of strata in private markets, as opposed to, um, one homogenous thing. And if you look at sure. the bigger end of the markets, the $20 billion funds and up, I think it is relatively more efficient, right? I think the likelihood for returns going forward is compressed. It's certainly the dispersion of returns in a lot of those strategies is compressed. However, the smaller end of the market or newer strategies where it's just not quite as competitive, I mean, even private credit, there just doesn't exist you know, dozens of consultants out there that call themselves private credit specialists, right? You don't necessarily have a pie slice in every institutional asset allocation framework dedicated to private credit. There's there's maybe $1.2 trillion worth of capital outstanding in private credit and, you know, multiple times that in, in U.S. munis alone. So you think, you know, high yield bonds, investment grade corporates, asset backed securities, treasuries, I mean, it's 50 plus trillion and 1.2 trillion of it is private credit doesn't feel even as an asset class overcapitalized yet yeah i guess you know what you say is makes sense um i guess the other thing that you do hear about the private markets which can irk a little bit if you're an operator in the public markets or certain certain strategies is that oh, private equity is less risky uh you know because it's not marked so frequently um so it's it has this advantage um but i've have you heard that perspective so how would you I, respond I don't think to that? people necessarily argue that it's truly less risky it, it it factually has lower you know price volatility i mean that's just a function of how you price it so there are institutions that are happy to have the reduction in their portfolio level vol that comes from a larger allocation to private markets. I don't think they're naive enough to say that it's really lower risk, right? But but there's a behavioral component to, to risk where when you're in the middle of a drawdown, decisions change in ways that you didn't necessarily think they were going to change going into the drawdown. <laughs> and so not having that drawdown can be be helpful, particularly if the decision makers are are not the same constituencies as the professionals, right? So it's like they put that in there because they realize it's going to have that added ancillary benefit. I think you shouldn't do it just for that alone, of course. And fundamentally, the real risk in any equity is that the business goes away, right? It goes to zero, or or you sell it. You have to sell it for a substantial loss, yes, right? It's yeah. capital impairment. Um, that's the real risk. So I don't think it's lower risk per se. Um, now I think there are areas of private equity that are higher risk and lower risk than others. And I think that's also, um, true. Yeah. I guess another perspective before we, we leave this space is, is the whole, the value of the liquidity and, you know, I suppose, are we at a point where possible complacency around that thing uh, that people say, oh, well, I don't need the liquidity really, and you don't need it until you do need it. And, you know, part of the behavioral 
possible advantage of private equity is the pre-commitment and you don't have the option to review these allocations unless you sell out into the secondary market, which generally is a very unfavorable outcome. Um, but what, what you know, mm-hmm. how very tricky to try and assess, but is, is liquidity being less valued at the moment than, than it should be or not? Or do you think it's about right? I think liquidity is the key here. It's also an interesting like risk premium to think about. In some ways, it's kind of like the equity risk premium. I think thinking about liquidity as a risk premium is somewhat naive because you're not generating returns from liquidity or illiquidity per se, right? What the liquidity does is it is it reduces the number of transactions, which reduces pricing efficiency, which means you're either able to get a wider bid-ask spread, pick up more value, get a higher yield, and that's where your actual return comes from. So it means the market is just less efficient. You know, you buy your house, you sell your house, you don't make money from illiquidity in your house, right? Someone pays more for it. It's the, a cap rate mm. or something that goes up or down. So I try not to think of like liquidity as what drives returns. It is, however, a, a risk. And I think if, so it's what really should drive the conversation with clients around how much to allocate. That's the key component. Like, do not think you can get access to this money for 10 years, period. First start with that. Now, true perpetual institutions don't need access to everything for 10 years. And, and it's also how I frame kind of the, some of the conversation with this um, charitable foundation. It's like we've got 70% in public equities. How much of that have we actually had to liquidate and sell over the course of the last decade? Well, virtually none. So if you know what your spending is and it's mathematically spelled out, you know, over the next decade, pretty clearly, it doesn't seem to me to be a pretty significant risk to put 10 or 15 or 20% of, of that into an illiquid asset. Now, you also bring up an interesting point. What's like, there's, there's optionality in liquidity, i.e. I can buy at the right time. I can sell at the right time, but behavioral research shows that that's not what people, even professionals like you and I tend to do. We tend to, yeah. <laughs> we tend, right. We tend to do the opposite. We, 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 we buy high and sell low. It's, it's muted for professionals compared to individuals, but it's still there. I think part of the value of private markets is that it does kind of lock that up. It takes some of the emotional and subjectivity out of the decision-making and you can really look at long-term plans right? The decision to sell a company in private markets isn't something that's based upon um, a quarterly drawdown in the S&P 500. It, it's, it's like a six-month process minimum to take something to market. And so you're really planning this a year or two years in advance, and it's driven by operating metrics at the company, right? As opposed to, not, you know, you can try to be a little bit tactical and say there's a ton of demand for this sector right now valuations are high now let's sell it but by and large i think taking the subjectivity and the emotion out of it is is the value of the optionality or the loss of optionality really in in illiquidity okay so maybe shifting within the old space but into the more liquid alts um you know, and obviously you've had experience of allocating across uh, both sides. And I know in in your in your book you talk about kind of 
I suppose, alpha and the erosion of alpha over time. And, you know, you, you have a, a, a categorization of different types of betas and alphas um, uh, within the investment universe from kind of beta to smart beta to different types of alpha to pure alpha. I mean, and, uh, you know, which kind of mirrors what you see in, in the industry as well. You have all of these labels like smart beta, alternative risk premium, alternative alpha, uh, style premium. You know, are, do you think these labels are helpful or are they just something that, that kind of helps map different strategies into different fee structures? Or how do you think about, the, the, you know, mapping uh, different strategies into different categories like that? I, I mean, I think the, you know, well, the industry is nothing if not great at creating product where there is demand. <laughs> so, you know, we've got whatever, 450 different factors now. There's probably only a handful of them that are really meaningful. The rest of them are um, either statistical anomalies or like trading strategies, right? They're not really durable factors. What drives returns in the long run for an asset is value, growth, and income that's really just about it you sell an asset for more than you 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 pay for it and you get distributions of some kind along the way so to me mapping durable factors to those uh real risk premium is where the value is i think what a lot of liquid alts or you know various risk premium strategies are today are systematic implementations of hedge fund strategies from 20 years ago Right. And, and, and if you track the migration of the industry, that's literally what happens. It's a lot of people that grew up on bank desks. They learned a trading strategy. Not everyone was doing it. They went out and launched a hedge fund around that strategy, was successful. They hired more people. More people learned how to do it. More people launched their hedge funds and, and eventually it became much more efficient. Um, and, and so, you know, merger arbitrage, well, you can just go buy every merger spread that's listed out there right now. And just systematically implement that is that a hedge fund anymore is that a risk premium strategy is that something you can make available in an etf or a mutual fund i mean it's kind of arguably all of the above so the framework that i think about you know alpha to beta is um if there's research written about it academics know about it lots of products available right you can buy it for 50 basis points in a 40 act type strategy then it looks a lot more like beta. I mean, even the S&P 500 is a trading strategy, right? Mm. I mean, it's just, here's the stocks, here's how you own them, here's when you sell them, and here's when you buy different ones. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to really understand the value you're getting and price it appropriately. That's where the framework becomes helpful to me. Like, is this something that anybody can go replicate? Could I hire an execution trader and staff it and do it ourselves? Because if you can, then it's it's not... It's not alpha anymore. It, the, the same thing is occurring in private markets, by the way. You know, I like to uh, give, give grief to the big funds, but the reality is, is they're incredibly resourced with just loads of brilliant people. And they have, um, you know, Vista has what they call the Vista Standard Operating Procedures, VSOP, which is like a library full of value creation steps. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally like McKinsey or Bain level consulting stuff. They're brilliant at that in software businesses. They are also large and they have to look at a, a company of a certain size for them to go implement that framework. Now, if you go down market, obviously, you know, they don't have the same level of resources. And as you get smaller and smaller, it's it's less. That's just a function of, of scale. 
Um, but today I'd argue that those smaller funds are probably, you know, more competitive than they were 20 years ago because that knowledge is out there and it's filtering down or, and oftentimes many of those small fund startups came from the larger funds. And so they bring a lot of that institutional knowledge with them. And so they're doing things that look like, you know, value creation stuff that the big funds alone would have been able to do 20 years ago. And it's this a continual migration of knowledge from alpha down to beta. I, I, I have a GP friend who put it to me very succinctly. He said, we've got to keep getting better faster than the market gets more efficient. Hmm. You also talk a lot about in your book, you know, within different strategies about, you know, the, the dispersion of returns and persistence of returns. And would it be fair to say that in less beta strategies, you're going to get more dispersion? Is that? That's the real risk, right? That's the real risk is, is a broader dispersion of returns. Yeah. Is the average slightly higher or slightly lower? It's difficult to say. And there's probably a lot of backfill bias, survivorship bias, particularly in the small and emerging manager parts of these indices, right? Hedge fund indices, private equity, because that's where the yeah. blow ups and the people going out of business quickly happens. Um, but if you can actually select from above median, you get paid for it. It's, it's quite literally shooting at a bigger bullseye. And I do think in private markets, there are things that you can look to X ante that are more predictive of persistence of performance X post. So again, it's not perfect, but I think the odds can tilt in your favor there. The, the whole area of, you know, these style premia and factors, you know, it was very much to the fore, I would say, maybe going back four or five years ago. And you know, particularly from, from my background in managed futures and trend following, you know, you were hearing the argument, oh, trend following is just a beta exposure. So I'm I'm not going to pay for that type of exposure. And, you know, I can go to an investment bank and get them. They, they have these, um, you know, equivalent strategies off the shelf and I can just get it with a swap. And, you know, we disagreed with that perspective for various reasons. And, it seems like alternative risk premium had a tough period, I think, in 2020, and I hear less about them now and more kind of uh, acceptance um, of maybe premium um, approaches within, the, within the, the managed future space. Is that an example of where there was a misperception that, that just because something might be something that you could do yourself, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is doing it exactly the same? Now you bring up a good point. Implementation is certainly key and not just in trend, but even in value. What's the specific metric that actually captures value? Anybody can see, right? I'm getting a dollar for 80 cents, like trading with, you know, a, a kid. Yes. <laughs> and that, that's easy to do, but actually measuring it in the framework of a corporate capital structure that's very complex. Implementation matters. Trend is, is an interesting one to, to think about because it's not necessarily intrinsic to the asset itself, right? Value is, is, is in the asset. Yield is in the asset. Trend is really a function of market participant behavior and willingness to continue to pay a higher multiple or a yield, lower yield on something in the future. Um, and I would say that makes the implementation even more critical, right? Because mm -hmm. what's the, What's the right measurement of it? What's the right periodicity of it? How do you do those things? So it's certainly no trivial, um, it's no trivial factor to go try and do it yourself. I think that's part of the challenging 
thing of, of liquid alts is how they actually implement a lot of those things impacts the market itself. Right. And then you've got to a, a, adapt and adjust. So yeah, it's, it's not, uh, by no means do I think I have all the answers. I think, I think, uh, I think it's hard to try to do a lot of this stuff yourself. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that we're talking about is the persistence and dispersion and, and dispersion of performance has always been a high in the in a managed feature space. Uh, mm-hmm. So kind of re- reflecting that kind of uh, the difference of approaches across different managers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you talk about a lot of different alphas in your book, you know, um, process alpha is one of them. And I guess what you're getting at is, while there might be an erosion of alpha in across certain strategies, there is still the potential of the allocator to cultivate their own alpha in, in their processes. And uh, we'd had a um, previous guest on, Phil Huber, I think it was, we were talking about cultivating a behavioral edge or a behavioral alpha. So it's kind of to the same, um, to the same mindset that, okay, while there might be some uh, compression of, of risk premium in markets, there's still a lot of potential to add value as a portfolio constructor and as an asset allocator. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think it even starts one layer above behavioral alpha. So I talk about um, organizational alpha or, or smart governance. And, you know, that's part of what I'm doing now is, is in my new role is helping clients think about what their objectives are. You start at the top and you really have to set and define, describe those objectives. And then that determines what your time horizon is. And your time horizon helps to frame what risk really means, right? If you're saving cash for a down payment on a house in six months, that's a different definition of risk than if you are, you know, mid-career saving for retirement, trying to build future wealth for next generations. That, that risks should not be the same. You shouldn't just use volatility for measuring risk in both. So when you when you set aside the time to really describe your policy objectives, to describe your time horizons, your, your risk, it, it helps frame better decisions. And and frankly, in an institutional setting, mapping out who makes which decisions is is super critical. The endowment model we keep talking about, I think in a lot of cases, you know, people just systematically implemented the output without an understanding for what resources and decision-making frameworks were needed to go manage that, right? You, you shouldn't be trying to pick hedge funds if you don't have anybody on staff with that competency uh, if you don't have the ability to you know underwrite complex limited partnership documents and subscription documents and manage all those things same thing with private equity you shouldn't try to do it if you can't manage commitments cash flows all those things so really putting um, putting the decision making framework in place first to allow you to then go make those decisions better is, is super critical. And then when you do that, it's all about managing your behaviors. Um, and process is what allows you to do that. Like the more, the, the more time I spend, you know, in alternatives, the more I realize process is really driving everything. I, I got into an argument with a friend of mine who's building a crypto hedge fund. Oh yeah. Uh, about, does alpha come from process or is it really just from great ideas? And as we like debated both sides of the arguments, I think he came to realize like what I'm saying is how you come up with those ideas consistently in a repeatable replicable way is only due to process. Now it may occur inside your head and no one has transparency into how that works. 
now over time i'd say that's not that's not the best uh most persistent uh, approach to alpha generation but there's certainly process there's things going on where you're identifying something you're vetting it researching it and you're ultimately making a decision the more you can standardize that the better and uh, i mean that that sounds very sensible and you know i suppose one of the things that strikes me you know i know in your book you write a lot about behavioral biases and it's a topic of interest for me with kind of my manager selection background what i find is everybody reads daniel kahneman's book and says it's so interesting and i saw, i recognize that heuristic and bias mm-hmm. and it's easy to talk about these things at an intellectual level between you and i here and now but mm-hmm. it's at that point when you're making the allocation decision that being aware that that there may be part of your decision making mm-hmm. might be being influenced by some of these biases is much more difficult how do you how do you go overcome of that in terms of what are, what what does it look like in terms of good process to overcome those biases yeah it's it's impossible to get rid of them completely i mean we are all human animals and that's just how our brains have evolved to make decisions it was built for a a simple, you know, uh, ecology, and we're in a very complex information economy. I think one of the most important things is, is simply repetition, right? Pattern recognition is more effective with more data points. So when meeting managers, what does that mean? We'll try to meet 100 in a strategy instead of 10. Number one, you're not going to be so biased as the first two or three managers that you meet. Yes, right? you're yeah. going to be frankly a little more jaded after yeah, 80, will, 88, yeah. 80, yeah. you know, 90. Um, but we all have a tendency when we see something kind of new. It's it's interesting. It's exciting, and we also we like people more after we have a chance to sit down and talk to them. So yeah. you meet your first hedge fund, you walk out of there, wow, they're geniuses. This is fantastic. We'll go meet a hundred more. Right? That's probably the simplest way to do it. You start to see. Well, everybody does this, right? <laughs> there's there's a lot of other people out there doing the same yeah. thing. And then you also see the bad funds. So take some bad meetings because you'll start to see, oh, this shop is great. They do it this way. This one's great. They do it this way. And then you see one that's got some really weak numbers and they turns out they don't do it that way. Now mm-hmm. maybe you've identified something that really is important. So just repetition, repetition, repetition is super important. Um, quantify things as much as you can right? Takes the subjectivity out of it. Now it's again, easier said than done. Uh, I've used personality profiles for a number of years to sit down with GPs and say, we take this, this test. It's 45 minutes roughly, right? Measures how they think. So there's an aptitude component, verbal and math, mathematics. And then there's just uh, 12 different spectra of decision-making, you know, is it, are they analytical? What are you looking for in that? So it's, it's, it's again just a way to quantify how they actually do it because mm. we, we we walk out of a room and we have our impressions right we have our biases that person's smart or she really knows what she's talking about or yeah she she's very analytical and he seems to be very you know decisive well this literally puts a frame a mathematical framework around that but then it also scores them you know, there's millions of respondents that are in the investment industry that it kind of benchmarks them to. And it, it gives you some interesting questions to ask as well. So it does give you quantitative output where you can walk out of the room and go, all right, I think they're like this. Let's go look. But it also helps you 
you know, if there's two partners and they both score very, very low on the sociability spectrum, mm. well, how, how do you how do you source new new deal flow? Like you've got to be out there meeting with CEOs and executives. How do you go about that? Because mm. you both score low on this, which means you might not enjoy that. Yes, I've I've had that conversation. They come back and say, "No, that's that's true." Here's how we've had to systematize it so we make ourselves do it in a disciplined framework. Right, so quantifying as much as you can, I think, takes a lot of the the, the subjectivity and the bias out of it. What about you know the randomness, which is the thing that everybody struggles with? That when you get tough performance, is it just due to chance or is there something structural? And it's one of the big things where. You know, again, you touch on in your book, um, the Michael Mabusan framework, you know, the luck skill, where you are, how much luck, how much skill. And there is plenty of randomness and uh, luck over shorter time periods in, in the investment world. And that's it. That, that can be difficult. And I would have thought it's even more difficult in the private wealth space when you're speaking to clients, because we're so conditioned with when performance is poor. Well, what are you doing about it? What is that mm -hmm. person doing about it? If the answer is nothing, that's rarely, you know, uh, satisfactory from a client perspective. You say, well, not doing anything because uh, it was just, we just sampled that side of the um, distribution. So how do you, you know, get people comfortable with this idea that there will be tough periods just by chance and it doesn't necessarily mean anything? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. And it's not, I actually think that there's uh, an interesting parallel between the wealth space and the institutional space in that the constituencies are somewhat similar. I'm, I, I'm in a lot of cases, just translating what I've done with my boards to my clients because they're mm. similar demographics, right? Um, they're successful business people um, and just getting them to extend their time horizon in a lot of cases, you know, the, the market's down or whatever, managers having a drawdown. Well, if your diligence said this is literally within you know one standard deviation of expected drawdown or something yeah. they're they're prepared for it it's setting expectations better it takes time it's not like you can snap your finger but you've got to condition them to think longer terms you know a friend of mine also a great um a very good author his name is brian portnoy runs a firm called shaping wealth brian has said success in investments means ensuring outcomes meet expectations. I love that framework, right? Because you, you can't really control outcomes. You can put process in place, right? And, and you may be able to find things that are predictive of those outcomes, but ultimately there's randomness. Yeah. But you can manage expectations, right? Yes. So doing everything you can to ahead of time say, hey, this is totally expected. When this happens, we're going to do nothing because this is completely within in the frame. Now, the other point that I want to make is that controlling randomness, you, you have to have appropriate diversification. Yeah. So there's a ton of research that shows what's the right number of managers. If you're going to build a portfolio of hedge funds, to me, you know, two or three is is kind of crazy. Or same thing with private mm -hmm. equity. If you're going to do one or two private equity funds, there's so much randomness inherent in a single fund that that's a very uncomfortable position. Now. I've come from institutions where we had 180 limited partnerships, and that's more a function of scale than probably the right number. But it seems to me, you know, five to 10 is pretty prudent. And so diversifying your exposure and alternatives is also important. Okay. You talk about, you know, in the whole process of, of picking managers and, 
you know, I think you have five P's in in your book in terms of your criteria, which is, I think, quite similar to the I think Morningstar have four P's, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So it's similar kind of mindset. And you have three I's in terms of managers as yeah. well, intelligence and integrity and intensity. Um, and it is difficult, as you say, if you pick, if you meet a hundred different hedge funds, that you'll meet, you'll, you'll meet a lot of impressive people there, mm-hmm. and a lot of people will probably tick the boxes from, from your framework perspective. Um, you know, if you were to try and it uh, boil it down to to, to these factors, what, 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 you know, when you're looking at uh, different managers, what are the really big things that you need to see to be comfortable with allocating to a manager? I mean, we all, you know, the five Ps, everyone starts with performance. So so back to the biases, like just acknowledge that rather than fight it. Um, and so, but boy, what I try to do is just eliminate um, where there's no evidence of good performance. Like why would you spend the time to, to get to know those managers? So you start with a, a subset of managers that have good performance, but I think the most important two factors are people and process. And back, you know, to that framework of like, alpha at the top of the pyramid and a whole spectra of different types of returns in between and then pure beta down at the bottom the the closer you are to that alpha the more important the people become the closer you are to that beta the more Mm. important the process becomes and so as you start to understand what they're doing you 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 tilt your diligence to focus on those most important factors i mean if they've gotten you know a ton of discretion um, the strategy is really unique. It's something that you haven't ser- seen or heard before, and you've tried to find those hundred managers. Well, the people are going to be super critical to ensuring that that continues. Here, an interesting stat in private markets, the people uh, on a deal are four to five times more predictive of future returns than the brand on the company of the deal. So that is if it's XYZ fund or ABC fund, that doesn't matter as much as if it's Joe or Sally four to five times as much predictability in the person. So I think in those strategies, getting to know how those people make decisions, right, which is where the personality profile gives us an edge. We really have insight into how do the, they, the two of them work together, um, who, who's the person that's very analytical, who's the, you know, that's super critical. But then process becomes more and more critical the more systematic and standardized uh, the investment is. And so, you know, in the whole domain of quant strategies and systematic strategies, what do you look for from a process perspective to to get comfort in that regard? So it's that's an interesting one. Is the model currently in its implementation? Is that the process, or is it about the process to test, measure, refine, and implement signals going forward? Mm. I tend to think that for for many types of quant strategies you know what what people think of quant in in hedge fund space is you know geniuses in a back room running computer programs yeah. well how do they actually go about finding the signals is their process appear to have a lot of you know data mining and and sampling bias and all sorts of things that yeah. result in you know great back tested numbers but not so much replicability to the real world. Mm. Um, what do they do when a signal stops working? How disciplined are they about killing that? When's the last signal that they killed? Why? How did it work? Mm. What's their process for adding new signals? Do they test it in some kind of beta framework? Do they add it at a a, a certain weighting and then w- raise those weightings over time? So again, I think it kind of becomes 
more about the process for refining and enhancing the model over time than what's in the, you know, what's underneath the hood today. I think people really try to get too deep into those. It, it is truly a black box, right? You're not going to completely understand that. Hmm. They may not even completely understand it themselves, frankly, but figuring out how they go about managing that, that's going to give, to me, that's more signal, less yeah. noise. And it's in, it's interesting because you're talking about how systematic strategies um, have, there's this perception of the model that I'm investing in, but ultimately mm -hmm. it was developed by a human and by people. That the people had to make decisions along the way, like, okay, how are we going to allocate risk? How, which markets are we going to trade? Which markets are we not going to trade? Mm -hmm. what, what, what will we do in a drawdown? Um, when, when will we add more markets? Um, all of those things. So curious, have you asked people running systematic strategies to do your personality profile and anything, anything different to come out of those profiles versus what you see in more conventional, I suppose, discretionary uh, managers? That's a good question, actually. I think this is the first time I've been asked that. I don't think I've ever given it to a quant manager. I would guess they'll score off the charts on mathematical competencies. <laughs> that would be the first. Yes. You'd, you'd at least yeah. want that, right? If they scored really poorly on that, that would be a big red flag. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but going back to your profile, you, you don't necessarily need your quant manager to be good at going out True. meeting exactly. um, <laughs> CEOs. That, you know, that's not part of it. But, but there is still that uh, subjective. Um, they still have to be able to manage risk through the cycle. And, and when the pressure comes on in a drawdown, there might be a temptation to tinker with the model or to add models, remove models. And, and, and that's, that's where, you know, I suppose there's that parallel between the typical discretionary manager and, and the quant manager. Totally. You, you never get away from human discretion or judgment in investing. You, you just can't. You can't complete. And frankly, I think that's a good thing. But how do you assess what they're likely to do in that environment? Well, past performance is no you know, predictor of future um, results. That's beaten into our heads as investment professionals our entire career. But my undergrad yes. is in psychology. And past behavior is, in fact, a very good predictor of future behavior. Mm. So if they've tended to behave, you know, this way in this environment in the past, it's a good indicator that they will probably engage in that same behavior in the future. There's just this inherent, like everybody wants a three-year track record and why, well, no one really knows why, but I think that's part of yeah. it because we want to see evidence of behavior across the cycle because then we can say, well, how are we going to set our expectations about their behavior in that same environment in the future? Is that is that a typical time frame you would look at? I mean, it strikes me that that two to three years is very typical in the market for evaluating managers. But actually, you know, it's a very it's not a very long term perspective. I mean, if you say long term to people, they often think for some people it's two to three years, maybe five years. For some other people, it's it's you know a hundred years. So, um, you know, within two to three years, you can have very similar macro market environment that that's not really telling you a whole lot how about how a manager might operate in a very different uh, market environment what do you think is the right time frame to be analyzing managers over i mean as long as possible i mean that two to three number i don't think it's been intentionally set by anyone i think it's just the result of what a lot of institutions look for a lot of consultants look for and there's just this um unintentional sort of consensus that that number makes sense and what i love to see is 10 years worth of like pre-fund track record 
right? Where you can get yes. really good insight into what this manager actually did with real money somewhere else. Now you've got to be certain about that attribution, but it might even be a day one launch or only 18 months worth of performance under the current brand. But if what they've done is repeatable and replicable and there's evidence of it across a cycle, and I think it's even more important today because cycles just appear to be extended, right? Because of, you know, unconventional types and amounts of central bank stimulus across the globe. Like they just, they just are longer cycles. And so, yeah, I like to see as much as I can 10, 15 years pre-fund and then quarter, couple quarters. I've done quite a few fun ones in my career. And I think, there's also a lot of research that shows fund ones now outperform. And I think if you condition that fund one performance on the pre-fund track record, right, that likelihood goes way higher. And that's why, because you're actually getting that evidence of persistence of performance ahead of making that decision. I mean, that, that's ideally a great place to be when you have that level of data. Very often you don't have that in that pure form like you exactly. may have. It's, it, it's usually messy. Yeah, a manager spinning out of a bank or another firm or whatever it is, and you have to draw some inferences. And then it's a matter of, well, do they have the same infrastructure around them or not? Um, so it's, you know, it's, it can be difficult to wait for, for, for kind of that setup, isn't it? Completely. Right? It's almost, you never find perfect. Like, it's, it's almost never perfect. You wind up with, was the, was, was the value in the seat or, or was the value, you know, in the, in the trader? In private markets, same thing. Was, is their sourcing going to translate, right? Was it actually them leading the deals? So you never have perfect, but that's where the diligence actually comes in, right? Check the box on, you know, a big manager that's on fund 12, where you're talking to existing LPs, like there's not a lot of value in that doing diligence to actually figure out those opportunities where there's more, you know, apparent hair and things keeping other LPs away. That's where there's value. It's arbitraging the difference between the perception of risk and actual risk. And, you know, a big part of your work has been on due diligence process, etc. And it's interesting you reference a study in your book about how the number of hours on, performed on due diligence, you know, correlated with the outcomes in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. more be better and deeper due diligence results in better outcomes, which makes sense. Equally, you know, there can be a temptation, you know, we'll, we'll we have our due diligence team, we, we'll tick all the boxes, we'll, we'll do all the quant analysis and you could, you know, nearly even engineer the outcome that you want. We have a predisposition towards this manager. Let's do the process, and we, that's the outcome you you get. You know, what what are the two or three things you really need to avoid or do to make it a good due diligence process? Would you say? To me, the most important one is uh, like intellectual honesty um, or a scientific, you know, process, whichever one you you prefer. But they're they're very similar. It means instead of looking for you know, confirmatory evidence, right, you, you need to find things to disconfirm your hypothesis. I mean, that's kind of what science, mm. how it works. You never prove anything, but you show a ton of evidence that is consistent, is consistent, is consistent, is consistent. And the alternate explanations don't cover all the evidence, right, as elegantly. Right? It's, it's like the paradigm of Occam, yep. Occam's razor. So, and, and, but also being willing to kill to kill your own ideas, right? That's that intellectual honesty. Like you've got to be the first one to stand up and say, I was wrong. So, you know, I think those are the the key things. Now, 
it helps to see tons and tons of managers because you just don't get married to any of them as much. Now, everyone wants deep relationships with a few, a few managers. You don't just leapfrog right to that. You have to get to there. And so meeting, you know, frankly, thousands of managers is, is super helpful in developing that kind of dispassionate approach. So yeah, to me, that's like, that's the most important one. And, and you've still got to be willing to kill something right at the finish line. So I've, I've taken things through an investment committee, gotten board approval, consultant diligence on them, all our stuff is done. And we did not close on it because of, you know, a few things in confirmatory due diligence. If you're not willing to do that, then to your point, you've already sort of preordained the outcome. Mm. You, you use sort of dispassionate approach, which is an interesting one, because when you talk about, you know, things that um, you look for intelligence, in integrity, intensity, I mean, with, with manager selection, is there a risk of being biased towards people you meet that are similar to yourself or you like, you're on the same wavelength? Um, how do you deal with that possibility that you think, okay, or this feels good uh, as an allocator? Um, but it might just be that, that it's something that is, you know, triggering one of your own biases. So I think the actual risk of manager selection is not something that we can um, quantify in, in, in a single dimension, two dimension, three dimension. <laughs> Honestly, it's this complex series of risk profiles. And to really hedge against any of those biases, because as I said before, you, you just you like people more after you meet them, you like people that are like yourself, that's a natural tendency for all people, is by consciously diversifying across those things. So we talk about like, you know, diverse managers. I think that's important to do because you're getting different approaches. So when I meet managers, I want not just different sectors, not just different strategies. I'm, I'm willing to say like fund ones, there's more risk. It's not always the best. So let's maybe have a fund seven, right? I'm willing to say small, is nichier, cooler, maybe better return, but let's have a couple of bigger funds, right? Let's have mm. people who score differently on these things. Let's have, so, so at, at Texas Municipal, which was my most recent stop, it was a $3 billion private equity portfolio. A third of the portfolio was funds one, two, and three, but I had no mandate to do that, right? And a fifth of the portfolio was women and diverse managers. Again, had no mandate to do that. But it's specifically okay. because I believe like you've got to hedge your own personal biases. And when you find somebody that ticks like three or four or six or seven or eight other boxes, but don't have these one or two things that you're like, wow, I think that's really important. Well, then then you hedge that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, it's. I mean, it's interesting. It's all about humility by the sounds of it and, and recognizing that it's manager selection is very difficult and you have to hedge or not so much hedge but diversify for, for from from the risk for diversify the risk that your your, your own selection may be biased right. yeah and so that means you have people who do just stuff differently but there has to be research around why that stuff is maybe a better way <laughs> it can't yeah. just be you know a gut approach yeah it's interesting i mean you talk a lot about repetition um which is true and I guess it's one of those things that you want to, you know, if you want to get good at anything, it's a bit like the 10,000 hours idea. This, um, you know, it's kind of like practice with feedback is the idea that you want. Now, the problem with, with, with obviously something like hedge fund selection is the feedback can be relatively slow or it's not a perfect signal because you can 
make a selection and you might be right, but right for the wrong reason, or you might be, you know, you might have just been unfortunate with your timing. How many years experience do you think you need to be doing this to, to really feel it? Or what was your own experience? Like, how, after how long did you feel, okay, I'm getting better at this, or I'm getting more skilled, or do you still think it's a, it's, a, it's a work in progress? I still think it's a work in progress, but it all comes down to how unambiguous is the signal, right? And how rapid mm. is the feedback? Right when it's kind of an ambiguous signal, and when the feedback is very slow, it takes a lot longer, and you need a lot more repetition. But that's precisely what you see in private markets and hedge funds: is that the signal is sometimes ambiguous because maybe you did get it right, maybe they just had bad luck, you know, or maybe you you got it right for the wrong reasons, you know. So there's there's all sorts of ways where it's difficult to assess doing post mortems even looking for things that you missed that still worked out and understanding why you missed them. It's okay to miss good opportunities for the right reasons too. And then just repetition, repetition and, and years. I think that's a huge advantage, frankly. There's so many good institutional allocators out there that are moving into the wealth space, moving into family offices that have 10 or 20 year track records individually in the space and have learned all that knowledge institutionally that's that's yes. just something that's difficult to build from scratch um because it takes i mean i think five to ten years i mean it takes five to ten years yeah absolutely um great it's been fascinating getting all of these insights i mean we could go on for another hour i think on behavioral biases alone um you know from your own journey uh, you know moving from You've done a bunch of different things as a consultant, working in the public space, working on the wealth management uh, side to where you are now as a chief investment strategist. What would your advice be for people, you know, wanting to develop their careers and to, to, to work in asset allocation and, and manager selection? Um, obviously, it sounds like meet a lot of managers is one obvious takeaway from our conversation today. Any any other tips and suggestions? I think building your network. Um and be willing to to change i mean change positions change roles change sectors change asset classes change jobs change companies like just be willing to move around and take a shot you know public pensions are they're not the most highly compensated job in the industry but again you you can build that network really rapidly there you can meet people and allocate capital and move around very quickly so i think they're a good opportunity for people wanting to move into alts for sure very good. Obviously, you have your own book, Better Than Alpha, which I definitely recommend, particularly in relation to the whole skills of manager selection and the challenges of behavioral biases and the, you know building processes. Any other books that you would have uh, on your reading list uh, for people to, um, to look at uh, as they build skills in these areas? Well, you mentioned uh, Phil Huber. He's got The Allocator's Edge, which is a tome of research of how to use every alternative in a portfolio context. I mentioned Brian Portnoy, a good friend of mine. He, he's, he's written Investor's Paradox on how to pick managers and then the geometry of wealth on how to kind of frame investment objectives and think about making outcomes meet expectations. So both very uh, behaviorally informed investors as well. Good stuff. Well, thanks very much for uh, coming on the uh, podcast, Chris. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. We've we've really t covered a lot of ground. Yeah. I've learned a lot. Um, so thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Alan. I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. And with that, I'll pass it back to Niels. 
Thank you so much, Alan and Chris, for a wonderful conversation where you managed to cover quite a lot of ground. Some of the things that stood out uh, for me was really this idea that even if past performance is not indicative of future returns, past behavior is often a very good indicator of future behavior. I also found Chris's view on what makes a sound due diligence process and the willingness to disprove your own thesis and biases as an allocator and how you can define success with your clients as outcome meeting with expectations, as Brian Portnoy's says. So I hope you were able to take lots of inspiration away from today's conversation. Make sure you go and get Chris's book, Better Than Alpha, and follow both Chris and Alan on social media because, as you can tell from today's conversation, it is so important that you understand how to construct a well-diversified portfolio and we really look forward to sharing many more of these insights as our series continue. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.